Welcome, everyone, to this 13th edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover. I'm a partner here at the Surety Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm joined today by Lou Kozlikowski, also a partner with the Surety Law Group at Wright Constable. Lou's been practicing for 42 years in construction, commercial, government <laughs> contracts, and surety law. Lou's been uh, he's been on on all sides of the of the table. He's been an assistant attorney general with the uh, Maryland Transportation Authority and counsel with the GAO Government Accountability Office. He's uh, represented uh, contractors, uh, general contractors, school boards, the government, subs, sureties, you name it. He's been on all sides of the table. He is uh, an adjunct professor at the Baltimore County Community College, where he teaches construction law. Uh, so we're we're fortunate to have Lou's experience on these issues. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, you can call in. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording at our website, wcslaw.com, or as a podcast on podbean.com under Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals. So far, we've issued 222 pins, and over 525 people have called in over the past year since we started the program. This is our one-year anniversary officially. We did the first one back in May 2016. We appreciate everybody's support and ask that you um, pass along our contact information to any colleagues you think might be interested in joining in. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. And always, if there's any technical issues, contact Jeannie Hyatt, J. Hyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at WCSlaw.com. We uh, muted the line to, um, to get rid of any background noise, and uh, we will unmute at the end for any questions. So our topic today is um, bid bonds, and I thought that to lead off, I would give sort of a primer on bid bonds, the sort of bid bonds 101, if you will, uh, and then Lou and I will, will talk about some of the issues in case law that, that deal with claims on bid bonds. So to begin with, I think it's helpful to sort of, you know, look at what the standard procurement process is. And typically, of course, it begins when the owner engages an architect to design the project and prepare the plans and specifications for building the project. These plans and specs are then made part of a request for proposals, or an RFP, sometimes called an invitation for bids, an IFB, which is then issued by the owner to various potential bidders. The RFP and the applicable statutes or governing regulations will typically require that any bidding party must provide a bid bond with its bid. These statutes, regulations, and or the RFP will typically describe the requirements of the bid bond, you know, its amounts, its terms, duration, the form, requirements for acceptability of the surety, etc. Under a typical sealed bid procurement process, after the bids are open, the contract is typically awarded to the lowest responsive and responsible bidder. It is important to note that the bid bond is part of the determination of whether the bid is responsive. And responsive means a bid must be an unqualified offer to perform in strict accordance with the RFP. If there are mistakes in the bid bond, the entire bid can be rejected by the owner. So you need to be careful when these things are being issued. After the award, if the low bidder fails or refuses to enter into the contract, the owner can then make a claim against the bid bond. A typical bid bond guarantees that if the principal is a successful bidder, the principal will enter into a contract with the obligee and will provide the security required, i.e. the pay payment and performance bonds. 
So a standard uh, bid bond reads as follows. This is standard form 24 under the uh, FAR regulations. We, the principal and the surety, are firmly bound to the United States of America in the above penal sum. And I'm just going to paraphrase here because there's all kinds of parentheticals and stuff. The above obligation is void if the principal A, upon acceptance by the government of the bid identified above within the period specified therein for acceptance, executes the further contractual documents and gives the bonds required by the terms of the bid as accepted within the time specified after receipt of the forms by the principal, or B, in the event of failure to execute such further contractual documents and give such bonds, pays the government for any cost of procuring the work which exceeds the amount of the bid. It has been held that the purpose of a bid bond is to afford protection against a change involving damage, loss, or detriment to the party soliciting the bids caused by the principal's failure to perform its obligations under the RFP. Bid bonds are required on federal, state, local government projects, and even on some private projects. As noted, the, the requirements for bid bonds are typically set forth in the procurement statutes or regulations, such as the Federal Acquisition Regulations, the FAR, for federal procurements, and the terms of those statutes and our regulations will control. In addition, terms regarding bid bonds will also typically be set forth in the RFP itself. Accordingly, when addressing bid bond claims, it is critical to read the governing statutes, the regulations, and the RFP terms, as well as the terms of the bid bond itself. Ordinarily, the bidder who is awarded the contract obtains the required performance and payment bonds from the same surety that issued the bid bond. This is why bid bonds are generally offered for nominal premiums. However, unless the governing statutes, regulations, or RFP terms require otherwise, the surety that issues the bid bond is typically not required to issue the payment and performance bonds. Generally, the GIA or bond application documents make it clear that the surety is not obligated to issue any bonds it chooses not to. Notwithstanding that, there have been numerous cases by principals seeking to either force the surety to issue the bonds or seeking damages for a surety's failure to issue the bonds. Bid bonds are generally viewed as separate and distinct from the payment and performance bonds. However, there are some jurisdictions where, the stat by statute, the bid bond automatically converts into final bonds. The penal sum on a bid bond is typically expressed as a percentage, such as 5% or 10% of the bid amount. In some cases, the bond amount is expressed as a percentage, but with a cap. The surety's maximum liability to the obligee is the penal sum on the bid bond. The bond penal sum is often expressed as a percentage as opposed to a specific dollar amount in, uh, to eliminate the last-minute insertion of a dollar amount as most bids are, com are completed by the principal at the last minute before submission. There are two types of, of bid bonds, generally speaking, forfeiture and damages. In a forfeiture bid bond, the surety forfeiture pays the penal sum of the bid, bid bond whenever liability is established, regardless of the amount of actual damages or whether the obligee has incurred any damages at all. In a damages type of a bid bond, the surety will typically be required to pay the difference between the principal's bid and the next lowest bidder, not to exceed the penal sum of the bond. So, for example, uh, assume, assume that the bids were opened on a hypothetical procurement and the principal's bid was 500000 The next low bidder's bid was five fifty. Thus, the principal was low. The bid bond submitted with the bid had a penal sum of 5% of the bond. When the award is made to the principal as the lowest bidder, the principal refused to sign. The obligee then awards the contract to the next low bidder at 550000 incurring 50000 in damages. The difference between the principal's bid and the amount of the contract ultimately awarded is the damages, but in this case, 
the damages would be limited under the bid bond to the 5% or 25% or 25,000 rather under that example. So with that bid bond primer in mind, I will turn it over to Lou. All right, I'm going to go over a couple of cases which kind of shows how the owner um, attempts to get that protection from the bid bond, but in the cases that I'm going to go over, they didn't because they messed up, which is why we're talking about them as far as you know, what can a claims handler do when he gets a, a bid bond claim. The first one in, uh, is out of Baltimore City in federal court where a joint venture submitted the lowest bid for a Baltimore City project. It was $40 million. And of course, as with a lot of government contracts nowadays, it had minority participation uh, goals as part of the requirements of, of the bid. So the, the uh, contractor, along with its $40 million uh, bid, also submitted a bid bond in, in the amount of $817,125. Uh, the bid bond, as, as Mike described, was conditioned upon return of either you know, the contractor's bid being rejected or two, the contractor's bid was accepted and the contractor executed and delivered the contract and furnished performance and payment bonds. Baltimore City awarded the contract and the contractor in turn provided executed copies of the contract, the performance and payment bonds, and proof of insurance. In this case, what happened was after the award, after Baltimore City had awarded the contract to the bidder, to the contractor, uh, the contractor was supposed to finalize his subcontracts with the minority subcontractors he had listed in his bid. Unfortunately, there arose some significant disagreements about the contract terms with the minority contractors, and so the contractor sought to substitute one of the minority contractors uh, from its original submission. The request was denied by the city, and then the city and I'll use the term, annulled the contract and sought liquidated damages in the amount of $817,125, basically seeking the bid bond. I use the term annulled because I think everybody's going to wonder what happened to the performance and payment bonds, but they annulled the contract, so the only issue here was could the city get the bid bond and what the court decided was that the contractor had complied with all of the terms in the bid documents. They executed the contract. They furnished performance and payment bonds. And once performed, the performance bond, not the bid bond, became the city's protection. That is, the city could not go back and merely, if you will, call the, bond, the bid bond into question and say it was a liquidated damage. They had to go under a performance bond, which they didn't. They called it an annulment. And that's the first time, you know, when you look at a bid bond, it gives the owner protection, but only with respect to exactly what it says, that it says that it protects the owner from the contractor executing the contractual documents and giving the bonds. And in this case, we'll provide the sites later, um, the owner got that protection, so the bid bond was no longer in force and effect. Another mistake that an owner made is in the... Is in a uh, case out of um, Iowa. There, the city requested bids for a public improvement, and of course, the IFB required each bid to be accompanied with a bid security that the successful bidder would enter into a contract for the work bid upon. 
There, the contractor submitted a low bid of $719,000 and a bid bond round numbers for $71,000. Here, the city, I think Mike mentioned it as well, here the city conditionally awarded the contract to the contractor subject to concurrence of the award by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. The city did not issue a notice of bid acceptance, but instead forwarded the contractor's proposal to DNR for its concurrence. What happened later was DNR advised the city that, Harp, that the contractor's proposal did not conform to the minority uh, business enterprise slash women business enterprise requirements in the IFB, and therefore the DNR could not concur in the award. For reasons unknown, the contractor did not provide additional documentation requested by the city. Instead, the contractor requested the city to return its bid bond as the contract was not awarded within 30 days as required by the IFB. In this case, the, con the, the, the invitation for bid said that the, that the award, if made, was going to have to be made within 30 days. After receiving that, the city retained the bid bond, accepted the second lowest bidder's bid, and brought an action against the contractor and its surety. The city sought $71,958. Again, the bid bond is liquidated damages. Uh, there, the court determined that the term successful bidder is the bidder whose bid the governing body has accepted. There, the city did not issue a notice of acceptance of Harper's bid and only passed a resolution awarding the contract to Harper subject to DNR approval. Hence, Harper was not the successful bidder, and the city was not entitled to Harper's bid bond because they didn't execute or award the contract within 30 days. This goes back to Contract Law 101 from college that the acceptance is only good, that the period of acceptance was only for 30 days, and after that, the contractor, which he did in this case, basically rescinded or revoked his offer, and therefore, if the offer was revoked, couldn't be accepted. Mike just answered my question for me. And, uh, and therefore, the bid, the, the surety was also not liable because the, the surety's liability is, is with, with what it says in the bid bond that says that if the bidder doesn't execute the contract and whatnot, and so the surety was off as well in that sense. Uh, the one thing that, uh, going back to the standard form 24, which catches some uh, sureties and some contractors is the bottom or the last part of it, if you want to pull that up one day. It says that each surety executing this instrument, reading from the Standard Form 24, agrees that its obligation is not impaired by any extensions of time for acceptance of the bid that the principal may grant to the government. Notice to the sureties of extensions is waived. However, waiver of the notice applies only to extensions aggregating not more than 60 calendar days in addition to the period originally allowed for acceptance of the bid. So in the case we just went over, the government could have, but they chose not to, asked the bidder to extend the period of time for acceptance of his bid, and under most bid bonds, the surety's obligation is likewise extended 
for some period of time. You'd have to read the bid bond to see how long of that extent, how long that extension is, if there is one. But the government, most of the times, asks for extensions of bids when they have a problem, such as other en entities or other things having to be part of the award process. Uh, many times, at least here in the state of Maryland, it's not unusual for a contract, even with 60-day language for acceptance, not to be awarded within 120 or 150 days after bid opening because of the other approvals that they have to get. In those cases, at least in the state of Maryland, they ask for an extension of time from the bidder, and they have the same similar language as Standard Form 24, which means that the surety likewise automatically extends, at least for the first extension. <clears throat> the other case I like to talk about is the one that is on the um, contractor's end, but still gets out of the bid bond, and that one is out of... Oops got my forms mixed up here a little bit, is out of Indiana, where a contractor submitted a bid of $2,997,000, and of course a bid bond in the amount of 10%. Okay. Uh, I won't go through the facts of, of how he made the mistake, but basically it was one where they were all talking in the office with about five minutes left to bid the job, throwing out numbers back and forth, and somebody forgot a decimal point, such that the bid, instead of being uh, 3300000 somehow got reduced to $2,997,000, basically a two or $300,000 mistake. The contractor immediately called the owner within a few minutes after bid opening, saying that there was a mistake and they'd like to rescind their bid, the school said no. The school sued the contractor and the surety uh, for its bid bond, which was 10%. Uh, there, the, the court held, which is pretty much the same, although it does vary from state to state, that the, you know, where, the, where bid mistake results from clear-cut clerical errors, those types of mistakes are excusable. Uh, if the mistake, however, is one of judgment, uh, there is no such relief, that is, that the, the contractor is stuck with his bid. Uh, in that case, the surety was released from, from its bid bond uh, because the principal did not have any liability on the underlying contract. That is, it should have been allowed to rescind its bid, and therefore, again, the surety is, is no longer liable. So that's the other type of case where the surety, uh, when they're making a claim for uh, the bid bond uh, can make that raise that as a defense. Okay, um, so basically you're you're sitting there and you get these these bid bond claims in, and and my advice to you would be, as I said earlier, get into the statutes and the governing regulations and and look at that bid bond and and read what the requirements are because there are. A number of cases out there that recognize that if the government doesn't accept the, the bid in the manner that is required under the, the applicable statutes, regs, or the RFP, or the bond, uh, that the surety can be discharged and can be, and can be uh, released from the obligation under the bond. So, for example, Commissioners of Sewage of Louisville versus National Surety, uh, in that case, the, the RFP required that the bidder 
provide a specific price for steel bars that were specified in the plans and specs. And these steel bars had a performance standard that was associated with them. So they had to, you know, they had to have a certain capability to withstand certain tensile strengths and all this kind of stuff. And so in the bid, the principal specified a certain manufacturer for its steel pipes and, and submitted that bid on that condition. And it was the low bidder and the, the government came back and said they were accepting the bid but they weren't accepting the manufacturer. They wanted them to, to provide the, the, the steel bars from someplace else. And that was held to be a conditional, that was held to be not an acceptance of the, of the bid because the bid was conditioned on the manufacturer. And, and it went back to an issue of price. I mean, this manufacturer had, a, had an acceptable price for the bidder and the government was saying, we don't want to accept that manufacturer. So. Uh, that ended up being a, a, a situation where the court held that, you know, the bid was conditional on the manufacturer. The obligee's failure to accept that uh, bid as it was uh, was actually a rejection of the bid, and therefore the surety was not held responsible. Another example is of Northeastern Construction Company versus City of Winston-Salem. Uh, in that case, uh, the city issued an RFP for the construction and extension of its public sewer system. Uh, Northeastern submitted the low bid and, and a bid bond. The bond was um, was a damages type of bond and was conditioned on the award of the contract to the principal in accordance with the terms of the RFP and the bid submitted. The city notified Northeastern that it was the low bidder and that it intended to award the contract, but Northeast, Northeastern refused to enter the contract. The facts revealed that when the city provided its notice of intent, to make the award, it also advised that it intended to reduce the amount of the sewer pipe to be installed by 20,000 linear feet, which was about a 15% overall reduction in the contract. And so Northeastern responded to the city that, you know, that prior to any award, that it it uh, deemed that change to be a substantial deviation, and um, that it that it amounted to a rejection of the bid. And so, therefore, Northeastern refused to accept the contract and in fact sought to withdraw it. The city uh, refused to accept or allow withdrawal and went ahead and contracted the work at a higher price and then sued, sued uh, Northeastern and the surety. The underlying trial court found in favor of the city, the appellate court, the Fourth Circuit reversed. The Fourth Circuit found that the reduction of the work was a material alteration in the terms of the RFP and resulted in a failure to have a meeting of the minds, which is necessary for a valid contract. The court further noted that a bid is an offer of contract and that any variation in the acceptance is a rejection of the offer and constitutes a counteroffer and unless accepted by the bidder does not create a binding obligation at all. The court stated that the surety had guaranteed a bid for the entire contract and not a reduced portion of the contract and the surety could not be held on its bond for a different bid than it originally guaranteed. So reviewing these the terms of the acceptance or the purported acceptance can uh, can often give the surety an out, if you will, on its bond if the government is doing something uh, outside of what was originally contemplated. And Lou, I'll turn it back to you. Okay. Uh, one of the things we talked about was mistakes and and. The federal government's pretty clear about that. That's in FAR section 14.407, which govern mistakes in federal procurement. The states are a little all over the place, if you will, 
Uh, most states permit contractors to reform or rescind their bids. Uh, reformation is a little tougher at the state level. Uh, most states will allow you to rescind it, that is to, to take, you know, revoke your, your bid or your offer because of a mistake because there's no meeting of the minds there. Uh, reformation at the state level is a little tougher to get because you're allowing a bidder to say, I gave you a price of X and I really meant X plus and oh, by the way, give me the award at the same time. So the cases on reformation at the state level aren't as many as there are for, for rescission. Uh, and there are some states out there that even though say won't even allow you to rescind. Um, there's one out of Minnesota, Roca Court versus City of St. Paul, where they didn't allow the bidder to even rescind based on a mistake. Uh, in the federal government, of course, it's by far, and depending on the circumstances, a bidder may be allowed to correct its bid and not be permitted to withdraw the bid, which is a little odd, but, or they may be permitted to withdraw its bid and, and, and take back the company bid bond. That's in FAR section 14.407-3, deals with mistakes discovered before award. A uh, federal agency may per permit correction of a bid where clear and convincing evidence establishes both the, exist the existence of a mistake and the bid actually intended. That's FAR section 14.407-3, paren A. Um, and there also, if you want to look, uh, the case of Bromel Contracting v. U.S. 596 Fed 2nd, 448, Court of Claims 1979 discusses when a bidder may withdraw its bid without forfeiture of its bid bond. I mean, generally that's where it's allowed to rescind its bid because it can show it's a mistake. Mike and I kicked around before this about, you know, we find no, at least I couldn't, find any cases that give us an exact mathematical calculation for when the owner should know or should have known that there's a mistake. Um, they all come to that conclusion, but nobody has no cases we found said well, if it's a five percent mistake, ten percent mistake. Um, most cases, at least when I worked for the government, most of the times where it hit around ten percent is when things went off on the on the owner side about should we ask for verification? Uh, because in the federal government, you're supposed to ask for verification of a bid where you knew or should have known that there's a mistake. Don't know where the 10% comes from, whether it's because over 10% over the engineer's estimate, you got to look at the bid and get approval, or whether it's because of the bid bond is usually 10%, that that's somewhere. But somewhere around 10% is where the, the mistake um, red flag should show up from the owner standpoint. In the federal government, you can even uh, do, mis you can correct mistakes after award. Um, and, but that's where the same thing, they can either allow you to rescind the contract or reform the contract, but they only allow you to reform the contract after bid opening if, if again, the mistake is clear and convincing evidence that a mistake was made, and if the mistake is made unilaterally by the contractor, the mistake is so obvious that, as to have charged the contracting officer with notice of the prob probability of the mistake. That's in FAR section 14.407-4. Um, there's a federal uh, claims court case that discusses the unilateral mistake. The court listed five elements of proof necessary to establish a unilateral mistake um, after the award. One, the contractor must show by clear and convincing evidence that a mistake in fact occurred prior to contract award. Two, the mistake was a clear-cut clerical or mathematical error 
or a misreading of the specification, not a judgmental error. Three, prior to award, the government must knew or should have known that a mistake had been made and therefore should have requested bid verification. Four, the government did not request bid verification or its request for bid verification was inadequate. And five, proof of the intended bid is established. If you can establish those five things even after the award, the contractor is allowed to either rescind, depending on the circumstances, or allowed to correct the bid price, both of which helps, obviously, the surety, um, either on a bid bond question or possibly, at that point, a performance and payment bond question. All right. Well, thanks, Lou. Uh, we're at the end, so I'll close up here. Okay, before we open up the line for any questions and answers, we'll, we wanted to let uh, everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, June 12th at 1230 Eastern Time. Our topic will be the surety and security interests, Article 9. And I'll be joined by Lisa Sparks, another one of our in-house professors who teaches uh, security interests at, uh, at the local law school here in Baltimore. So a quick rundown of coming surety events. The, uh, the course, the uh, ABA FSLC spring meeting is May 10th through 12th in Naples. The Philadelphia surety claims lunch will be May 17th. The uh, Chicago surety claims lunch will be May 18th, followed the next day by the Defense Research Institute meeting also in Chicago. So let me uh, unmute the line here in case we have any questions. All right, everybody. Any questions? Yeah, I, I have. I have some questions. Um, you've talked a bit about uh, the, what you can do in terms of defenses. This is Larry Jortner from CNA. I'm here with uh, my gang: uh, Ted Grafinski, uh, Stephanie Ketty, and and uh, Dan Oldenkamp. Uh, we're we're. Uh, have you run into any cases where uh, there is a uh, bad faith allegation connected with a bid bond litigation and uh, how was it treated by the court and how is it dealt with by surety? Well, I think there, there are some cases where, where that has come up in connection with the refusal to issue bonds, uh, to issue the payment and performance bonds. So the surety will issue a bid bond and then uh, the bid will be awarded to the to the contractor, and the contractor will will ask or demand that the surety issue the payment of performance, and the surety uh, refused for various reasons, and and so there, that that can generate litigation, and in some of that litigation, I think bad faith has been alleged. Um, I can't say that I, so I can't give you exact. I, I I'm I'm pretty sure there's been no cases where, where the surety has been held to be in bad faith in connection with the bid bond that I'm aware of in the research that I've done. So, um, Yeah, this is Nick, Nick Hyslop. Uh, hey, Larry and CNA gang. Uh, we hi. had um, a situation, a you know, performance bond, and I can't remember exactly the defenses we had, but the obligee tried to um, bring bad faith in against us. We uh, hung tall. Mm -hmm. We eventually settled, but I think we settled at better terms, and the bad faith aspect didn't really cause any difference. I mean, we didn't pay anymore necessarily because of bad faith, but we just, you know, we just held it out, and uh, in combination with our defenses, we were able to get a settled resolution 
that was, you know, somewhat better, I guess, than originally. So no, no real teaching points other than if you have some defenses, the fact that an obligee brings a bad faith action doesn't necessarily mean you will um, give up crying or screaming. We, we got it resolved to pretty fair terms. Thank you, Nick. I can, um, if, you, if you would like to look at the issue a little bit further, I can refer you to the law of suretyship and the second edition, and there's an article in there on bid bonds, and, and in that article, I think there is a discussion of extra contractual liability and the various um, approaches that some of the, the plaintiffs have taken on bid bonds. Okay. This is Dan Oldenkamp, same office as Larry. Um, my case, I'm thinking of your pipeline case where they changed the scope before awarding. Uh, my case a little different. They re-awarded to it the second best bidder for a lesser scope. So it was awarded for the full scope bid, then it was re-awarded for a lesser scope. Would you think the measure of damages is simply the difference subtracting that uh, change in scope? Or would you think that that's also a defense to the entire claim for the surety if it's already been awarded once? Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, that really should have been a, a whole new procurement, that they really they really shouldn't be allowed to... Well, to change the terms, if you will, in doing that. And no, if it's it a material change, yeah. in that case that I talked about, you know, could control. There's there's another case that I found that uh, where the change was minor, you know, it was like $2,000. And, you know, so so there the change wasn't wasn't um, held to release the surety. But, yeah, if they're, if, if they're making that kind of a change to, to the award, I think you can make that argument that this is not, you know, this is not the bid that we issued the bid bond for. This was about a 2% change, so it's kind of a toss-up, I guess. But, yeah, and the yeah, materiality becomes the issue and, and, and in some sense. It also depends on, you know, like I said, going back to the language, you know, what did they say? Because some of these cases, you know, they, they reserve the right to change the, you know, the contract. They reserve the right to change if it's like unit a uh, unit price contract and things like that, and that can also impact a decision. Yeah, I mean, the other question would be is what level of government were we dealing with, federal, state, or local? Uh, certainly the locals have <laughs> a lot of flexibility. Uh, states have less uh, flexibility, and the federal government has very little flexibility in that sense. Um, I would wonder whether or not you're, you know, if it were a termination for default, which it isn't, you almost have to go and re-procure exactly the same thing or you're not allowed to go after for excess cost of re-procurement. And those kinds of cases would, would sit up pretty well, I think, about where you're trying to go after a bid bond where you're actually procuring something different than what the first uh, procurement was all about. And that's the question about whether 2% is, is materially different or not, particularly if it changed the time. Yeah. Time is usually a critical factor on why someone may not be able to do the work. So there again, I, I think yeah, take a look at um, at that article in the uh, Law of Suretyship, Second Edition. Anybody else? All right, everybody. Thank you for calling in, and uh, hope to be in touch with everybody next month. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you.
Hello? 